Any any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Except for Bob and his age. Oh gosh, <laughs> we don't. Yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, can you guys just take a break for 60 seconds? Okay. Let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass and the Eucharist for all your sacraments. Um, it's so easy to take them for granted. Lots of people do today. Um, after the reading last week, it was certainly hard for me to do that. Um, to think what people have to carry or how much they're encouraged to deny their sins without the sacraments is a sort of stunning revelation. We have this great gift um, and we believe um, that when we participate in it, you're more fully a part of our lives. You heal us, um, make your divine life um, more actively a part of the healing that goes on on our own. So. Thank you for that, Lord. Um, ask a special grace on all that we're doing together. Um, I think it's going to be particularly, certainly not going to be an easy class for me. Um, this work gets as close to holiness as any I've ever read. So um, grant us your light, um, the spirit of your peace um, in what we do with this work. Ask a blessing on all of us, whatever burdens any of us carries, the worries, the frettings of our heart, people we love, whatever struggles people are having. And tonight I ask a special blessing on, on Robert, on Bob. Um, he, he's, he survived hospitals galore this last year, says a lot for him. Um, watch over him, surround him with your protection, physically keep him well. Um, Strengthen him in his efforts to be good, to be virtuous, to, um, to do your will. Strengthen all of us to do that. Um, take more seriously, day by day, all of our efforts to try to do your will. Um, and we're grateful for this work that we do together. Um, it's a great gift to be a part of each other's lives. Um, um, thank you for that. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Welcome. Um, I'm going to read the Marina poem. Uh, remember, this is one of the poems that Eliot wrote. Um, it, it was a it was a response to his reading of Shakespeare's Pericles, and I've mentioned that poem. It's if we do anything after Dostoevsky, we're either going to stop, or if we do anything, my wish would be to go on and do Pericles, to end the course on Pericles, and, and, and um, um, go back to Eliot's Four Quartets. I know some of you have done it before, and those of you who have done it know that it's, it's not an easy collection of poems. It's, they're, they're probably the most, among the most difficult poems of the 20th century, and they are profound, just profound. So, 
But anyway, he read, um, he read Shakespeare and a couple of critics who were especially important in bringing some things out of Shakespeare's plays. I'm thinking of one person in particular, his name was G. Wilson Knight, who was an Englishman, and the criticism he did on Shakespeare was superior, far superior to anything else being done because he saw the transcendent aspects of Shakespeare at a time when nobody else was, and Eliot read him and was really moved by him and, and by Shakespeare. Remember in the play Pericles, Pericles sets out at the beginning of the play to marry this woman. He has to go through an ordeal, he has to solve this puzzle. I'm not going to tell you what happens, um, but it puts him at risk and he has to flee. And while he's at sea fleeing, he, it appears that he lost his wife, who was pregnant, so he loses his wife and daughter. So the greater part of his life is spent um, in exile, he's lost his home, thinks he's lost his wife and his daughter. Remember, I, I mentioned the parallels with Wintertail because in Wintertail, Leontes um, thinks he loses Hermione, his wife, and, and he does lose his child. His son, is, his son is killed. By the things that he does, in the case of Pericles, that's not true. Pericles doesn't do anything wrong. It's just, it's something he has to suffer from. But something happens towards the end of his life, and his wife and his daughter are restored to him. So the, the power of the play um, lies in this sense of having gone through a life of dying, losing all the things you, you thought you had when you set off in life. I mean, I just think it's so common. We enter life, we think we're so smart. I think we, hopefully we discover early on that we're not as smart as we think we are. And a large part of our life is in, spent suffering, particularly involving the things that we love, whatever the nature of that suffering. Anyway, he spends this life in exile, uh, mourning the loss of his wife and child. At the end of the play, um, they're recovered. And I think it's Shakespeare's way, I, I, I don't know of another play like it except Winterstale. It's his way of helping us to see, experience, what heaven will be like. Because whatever our losses, this is our faith, whatever our losses are here, every one of those losses is going to be renewed in heaven and transformed. They're, they're, they will be the source of a greater joy than we could have ever known here. So all the things that he thought he lost, his wife, his daughter, are returned, restored. So there's this great glory, and I, I know I've described this to you before, there's one moment at the end of the play when the agony that he's carried for a great part of his life is rested, has relief from it. And in that moment, and what gives him the relief is in that moment, when he rests, um, he hears the music of the spheres. And if you've been paying attention, you know the music of the spheres goes back to, um, as far back as Plato, but all the, great, all the great philosophers and all the great poets carried it with them. It's at the center of Dante's Paradiso. Remember, when you go into the heavens, you hear this harmony. You don't hear it in your body. It's an intellected thing. Um, it's an intellected. Um, it's it's, the, it's the, that intelligible harmony created by the rotation of the spheres. Each sphere has a different note. Each sphere is looked over by a different order of angels. So each one has a different note, and together they produce this harmony. I mean, just, if you stop and think about it, you'd have to say, how, it, how could it be any different? 
If this is God's creation, remember the, the Iliad, the very first epic poem was written in verse. There's nothing that isn't put to music. Because the belief, as far back as our poet or traditions go, is that the world is created in harmony. There's this great beauty, and the trouble is that we're cut off from it because of our sins. But one day we were meant to hear that. So it won't, eat, it won't be just seeing the face of God. It will be f being flooded by this harmony. Shakespeare, or, um, Pericles in that play is the only character that I know of in all of literature that actually hears the music of the spheres. Paul talks about visiting the third heaven. I, it's hard for me to believe he didn't hear it. Um, you know, but we, we never hear about those things, particularly in a secular world. Anyway, he hears the music of the spheres, and there's this, there's this extraordinary oneness with the universe. He's at home, just the way Dante is when he returns home. Okay, so this poem of Eliot is called Marina. It's named after his daughter. Uh, remember in, in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale? Who's his? Huh? Who's his? Is Shakespeare's? Who's, I, don't, who's I, don't, daughter? I don't know. Oh. I'm talking about Pericles' daughter. I don't know. Just for a minute, I'm not sure. Hold on. <laughs> Eat your cake. You stir. <laughs> um, now I'm lost. I don't know. Marina. <laughs> no, you. Um, in in Winter's Tale. Um, Leontes loses his daughter, remember? And the oracle is, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Her name is Perdita, that which is lost. So he, he won't recover his kingdom until she's restored. And that's absolutely out of his power. Because the problem with him as a king is, he's had her, because he's a king, he has everything the way he wants him. He's got to learn to give his will to somebody else. So... Paulina says, you cannot marry until I tell you you can. And she's going to wait on the, on, the, uh, on the oracle because her faith is in God. So in that play, we move from an, a temporal order in which political power defines everything that goes on. And for 16 years, we are, we are between orders, but pointing towards an order that is an order of faith. He cannot do anything until Paulina gives the word. All of his lords are going, get an heir, get an heir, get married, have a child, because the king, so when, when you say you're giving up too much because look at the good you're losing, this whole kingdom, Paulina's saying that whole kingdom is not worth this oracle, whatever is behind it. So in Winter's Tale, we begin to appreciate how important faith is and how easily we trade it off because we want things of the world. They're the things that drive us. We don't trust in God. We don't live believing that there will be something greater. The world has a hold on us. That's exactly what was going on in Pericles. He loses his daughter. Her, her name's not Perdita. It's not an act of faith. She just, she's restored. But it's one of those moments where um, we feel the power of regeneration, a rebirth, a renewal. A life is given back. So, and my reason for choosing it tonight is because, you know, from Murder of the Cathedral, it's all about a martyrdom. This man, this man is reaching a point in his life where he's going to have to give up ev everything he desires. Um, so, um, T.S. Eliot's Marina. Um, 
I think probably we'll print some off and I'll give you next week, but for now just you can hear it, okay? Robert. It's good just to hear. Robert. Yeah. Are those on? Yeah. <coughs> Thanks. Thanks. I checked it twice with the Yep. Yep. TSL eight Marina. Um, remember from Dante, remember from Homer, the Odyssey, Virgil, um, Shakespeare, the Tempest, where I mean, you can go again and again. The sea is always an image of um, a place that's not our home. We're not meant to be at sea, our home is on land. But the, because the sea is constantly shifting, it's an image of the shifting nature of our world, but it's also the source of grace. It's an image of mystery. It's that through which grace has come. We don't have control. We can't control the sea. When we do, we, we end up doing something destructive. Okay. So the sea has always been an important image in literature. Marina. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent, sorry. Notice when I'm reading how often Eliot is not explaining anything. There's not an irrational mind using an argument. He's presenting images um, because he wants us in nature, and he knows this, and I'm sure, and I'm, I'm, I, I believe this particularly of the women because I think women do this generally better than men. Um, you know that your, any experiences you've had that have been particularly joyful or painful are generally associated with a thing. An ice block, a living room, a, you know, a place. That whatever goes on and on, because we're not angels, we're corporeal creatures. So whatever experiences go on in our life are always associated with something, something physical, something concrete. Whatever, um, whatever the nature of those experiences. So it's always important to, to be pulled back into that world, out of our heads. Because in our heads, we're in a world of thought abstracted from the world. And I've been saying all along, poetry takes us back. It very often takes us back to pains, very often joys. But it's back to that concrete, the concrete world of suffering, of loss, because everything in nature is going to be lost. So just be aware of the way imagery, images of things keep playing in this poem. <clears throat> what seas, what shores, what gray rocks and what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, oh my daughter. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death, are become unsubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the wood song fog by this grace dissolved in place. What is this face less clear and clear, the pulse in the arm less strong and stronger, given or lent, more distant than stars and nearer than the eye, whispers in small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet, you can watch a daughter. I mean, you can imagine a father with a young girl growing up, associating with all the, whatever the images are. There's this young, innocent thing, um, and the last thing he sees of her is disappearing in water. She's drowning. She's gone. He 
evolution. Um, but it's this little thing that was a part of his life, and he loses her. Whispers and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the waters meet. Bowsprit cracked with ice and painted cracked with heat. I made this, I have forgotten, and remember. The rigging weak and the canvas rotten between one June and another September. Made this unknowing, half conscious unknown, my own, the garbered, straight leaks. The seams need caulking. It's aboard ship, trying to survive. This form, this face, this life, living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken. The awakened, lips parted, the hope, the new ships. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers and wood thrush calling through the fog? My daughter. I'm going to make this point in a second, but let me touch on it here because um, I'll, I'll come to it. One of T.S. Eliot's fundamental principles, one of the things he made clear for a generation that didn't understand it, is you can't read a piece of poetry by itself in isolation. You cannot. We've been putting together a tradition here for four years. Um, it's, a way of, it's a way of showing that, er, remember we've said this, every work of art carries something forward. Every work of art looks back to the past. No artist could do his work without help from those who preceded him, just like a violinist or a pianist or, you know, or a priesthood. So it's impossible to understand a work in isolation. The only way we can really understand it is by putting it in its tradition, and once we do that, there will be levels of meaning that will emerge in that work that we could not see on its own. It should teach us to be careful of our judgments. We so often make judgments of people. There's just a lot we don't see. We've got this individual work in front of us. You know. I hope that's true. I mean, you, all of you have been here long enough to know um, the Iliad's practically present in every work we've ever read. Um, and every modern work looks back to those works. So Eliot coined the phrase, a simultaneous order of literature. That when you put all these works together, there's this simultaneous order. And we have to learn to see it. And each time a new work enters it, it changes the order. In, in one sense, it's like, it's like an analogy, an, analo an analog of um, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is there, but people entered it. And it's important to see each one of those individuals in the context of that body of Christ. We are, we are not meant to be alone. We are meant to be one with each other. We don't really see each other without seeing each other in relation to everybody else. So, okay. <coughs> quick. Quick said the bird. Here, now. Bob, isn't that true with scripture also? We, we, can't, we can't look at scripture. I can't just read the book of Isaiah and say, Absolutely. I know scripture. Yep, absolutely. Ab I mean, I've got to look yep. at all of them. I'm so glad you yeah. said it for yeah, true. That's true. Um, I mean, how can anybody... <laughs> How can anybody understand Isaiah when everything he says is pointing to Christ and you won't know it until exactly. you know, read the New Testament and then go back and Isaiah is going to, yeah. his meaning is going to amplify tremendously. It's like the multiplication of the fish it just gets richer and richer and richer. Very quickly, um, we finished Hawthorne last week and um, 
we saw that this community of people who wanted to um, have the freedom to practice their religion fled their country, gave up their homes, their families to come to America to practice it. And on getting here, immediately broke. There, there was a schism, a division. And we, Hawthorne defined it for us by what he did, by the importance that he gives Ham Hutchinson and by the importance he gives that the majority of the people. And remember, Hutchinson lived according to faith and believed that faith elevated her above the temporal order. She had no reference points in nature, none. She wasn't accountable to the law. She, she held herself to a standard higher than the law. And the result of that is that the people took her to court. I mean, they accused her of being a, you know, an outsider and, and finally uh, exiled her, ostracized her. The majority of the pilgrims lived by faith as well, except they believed that anybody who lived by faith had to show their faith by their works. So the evidence of their faith was what they did. So on the one side, you had a people given to conformity. I mean, think about the implications of this, because to me, it just it defines America. People who live by conformity and people who resist it, who just defy it, I mean, because there's something wrong. There's no mediation between them. The people in the community um, believe that they knew what was in the inside of a person's soul and could damn that person. They were convinced that anybody who didn't live the way that they liked was bad. So you've got the saved and the damned. That's that awful dichotomy. Um, what, Haw my, what I was suggesting last time was what Hawthorne does, what he does to refound, to go back and refound because we were taken back to a founding um, generation, is to make the reader aware of something the people in the novel are not aware of that we become aware of what people inside, and we get to see inside of things through him, not through abstractions or ideas, concretely, because we enter into Hester's life and Dimsdale's as well. So we're aware of this people who make these black-white condemnations, who think they know everything about people, and we learn that they don't. They think of Dimsdale as a saint. <laughs> we know that he's not. He's a tortured character. And they think of um, Hester as being damned in sin, we know that she's struggling to be good. So what I suggested is that when we get to the end of the novel, to this inauguration day, the, the day of the new man, what Hawthorne's doing is, um, through the poetry, helping to bring something new so that a renewal, a regeneration goes on in our hearts, our minds, the way we see it. You know that that's the claim I've been making for poetry all along. That it's the poet who helps us to see and feel things that so often we don't know. So he was doing that. Um, I mentioned Melville, but I want to, I just want to, um, um, you don't have your book, but I wanted to read these just to recall this, to, to make this a little bit more concrete. Um, this is in Moby Dick. You remember that Ishmael has become so angry, so disillusioned with his world that he has to go out to sea. And he joins the, the, the Pequot for this journey out to sea, thinking he's going to go on a whale journey. And not very long after they set off, he, he discovers they're actually on a vengeance quest. Because Ahab draws everybody into the quest to get back at that whale. So the entire story is a vengeance quest. And in Melville's understanding and the way that he presents Ahab, what we see is 
The vengeance involved here goes to a metaphysical principle because the assumption is there's something evil in nature. We're in a Protestant world, absolutely Protestant, because the presumption is nature's depraved. The, fall, the effects of the fall were complete. Nature's depraved, man's depraved. Every, everything is essentially evil. That's the presumption. Ahab was raised that way. And it was a Calvinist world, and he was raised to believe in predestination. The idea that he's predestined to do things is so offensive to him, he, he does everything to fight it. But that's the nature of the quest. And everybody joins him because everybody on that quest has suffered from wounds. There is nobody who has escaped being wounded in their life. I believe all of us grow up from wounds. And the question is, what do we do with them? What do we do? Um, here is Ishmael. And this is in chapter 41, describing Ahab. Moby Dick had reaped away Ahab's leg as a mower, a blade of grass in the field. No turban Turk, no hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming mouth. That is, every epic, every story up to that point is always dealing with a man fighting with another man because that man did him wrong. This is the first story in the history of literature in which what man goes against? Nature. Because nature has something evil in it. So there's a radical change that's taken place. Okay? 16th century of the Reformation, and here we're in um, 19th century America. Smaller reason was there to doubt then that ever since that almost fatal encounter, Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale, all the more fell, for that in his frantic morbidness he at least came to identify with him not only all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as a monolithic incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them to their left living on half a heart and half a lung. It's almost like Dinsdale. Um, all the cracks, the sinews, and cakes of the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all its general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. And then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it. He has to get back. So what Melville is dealing with is the ground of everything else that Hawthorne, he, he's not dealing just with a social problem in, in the northern Protestant community. He's dealing with a metaphysical issue. He wants to get beneath that culture to find out what's wrong with it. So his, his, his quest is openly metaphysical. He wants to get behind it all. Um, and this is the other one. <clears throat> this is when he gathers the men together to let them know what's at stake in this quest. And he says to the men, hark ye yet again, the little lower, go down. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its feature from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask, how can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes they think there's nothing beyond, but tis enough. 
He tasks me. He heaps. There's something wrong with nature. All of us feel it. He wants to get back at it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. And be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk to me not of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Or could the sun do that, then could I do the other? He goes, so um, you've got Melville answering this claim of the Protestant that nature is inherently evil. And that implied some evil in God. If God, if, God, if God could create a human being already predestined in his soul, predestined to damnation, how can he do that unless there's something not good in him? So Melville's going straight to the heart. Of, now remember, this is, this is a couple centuries after the Reformation. America's a couple hundred years along. But it's mid-19th century that you've got these two poets taking up this task. Okay? So Melville's doing it in Moby Dick and Hawthorne in Scarlet Letter. So I just want to briefly put that out because we're going to leave that world now. We're coming forward in modernity. We're coming to closer to our time. But I just wanted to just do a quick review. I, I don't want to take any time, but I'm glad to take a minute with a question if anybody has something here. Because I know that this is a lot. But to me, it's after, this is principle. I'm not dealing with surfaces right now. I'm dealing with a principle. This goes right to the heart of everything behind the Protestant world and something at the heart of America. And I hope in the work, certainly last week, I hope after what we did with Dimsdale's confession, that something about the nature of the sacraments becomes clear. How good they are. Take them away and what do you, what do you have? So any, any questions or thoughts or before we... One of the questions that I would ask, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sort of reinforce my, either you have to, I mean, I've been putting this question since the beginning. So many of the philosophers say the poets are liars. Are you kidding? Look at what these guys, they're talking about whales that bite off your feet and um, pearl, you know, a shadow of her, and part of her gets imparted to the stream and another woe gets carried on. Are you kidding? Be real, grow up. So either the poets are liars or they're showing us something and helping us to feel things because of what they show us that other people can't. I can't put that more strongly. <laughs> Either you're going to be with the fools or the smart people who know that poets are fools and anybody who likes them doesn't know what they're doing. No questions? How are you finding this? You haven't been here. It's yeah, it's the second time. Right? Yeah, I know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> no, I can't believe this. Okay, no questions. We're just chomping at the bit to get to this one. <laughs> Say again. We're just chomping at the bit to get to this <clears throat> That's one. That's it. You and my wife. <laughs> time I look up, she's going, get on, get on. Get well, on. let me mention then what I think about the ending of on, the uh, Scarlet Letter. Okay, make it brief. Just <laughs> I've already got people giving me I'm hard wounded. looks. <laughs> it's just about that last page of those words that you don't know what they mean. Right? Yes. Gull is on it. Right. Go ahead, Margie. Okay, so I've decided 
the meaning of that. And I have read on the web many, many, many interpretations by all kinds of people. And I think that's what it was for. It, he did that so that each individual would have to determine what it meant to them, to that individual. Everybody can look up the meaning of the words, but when it comes to interpretation, they were all so different that I think that's why he wrote it that way, so that it would be an individual interpretation. I'm now through. Good, thanks. <laughs> did you have, did you no, have something? No, I'm just looking, looking at it. Just read the last line, Doug, can you quick? The last line of the book? Just read, yeah, the one that she's... In, before Suzanne reads this, remember, remember our talk about symbolism and Hawthorne handing us the black rose, you know, and, and as, a, as an indication that what he was passing on was something living to us and that everything that goes on in the book is a sign or a symbol of something else. So can you just read it, Doc? Okay. Um, so there's, he's describing the tombstone, tombstone, um, which was for both Hester and Dimsdale. It bore a device, a herald's wording, of which might serve for a motto and brief description of our now concluded legend. So somber it is, and relieved only by one ever-glowing point of light, gloomier than the shadow. On a field, sable, the letter A. Ghouls. Sorry, the last? Ghouls? I don't know what that means. I think it's dark. If red. I remember. I think it means red. The, the, the letter's red against a field. Yeah, but I think the note down here says Ghoul in is, heralding. Is a red. Red, yeah. Is a red. Yeah. I just, all I would do is caution everybody that um, um, if there's a danger in trying to make it whatever we want, we have to hold it up against the story, the, the scarlet letter the gloom behind it, the darkness, um, and everything that Hawthorne's done to, to try to relieve that gloom, you know, to bring something to it that the people there don't know. Um, okay, let's, let's start, Elliot. A couple of um, important things that just have to do with the general background. Remember, I, I mentioned this principle that Elliot articulated, formulated early in his career, where he said that um, all poetry um, coexists together and, and, and produces what he called a simultaneous order. Um, by doing that, he, he showed how, he, he showed that there was a connection between poems that we couldn't ignore, first of all. But he all, implicitly, what he was also doing was showing that there's a timeless order to poetry. And Eliot believed that strongly. You know that I do. I, I believe that when we read the Iliad, even though it was written or sung, what, 3,500 years ago, that that poem is meant to be held in our hearts now um, because it's the beginning of our civilization. It, it teaches us something about who we are. To not read the Iliad is, in some ways, not to know ourselves. So what he was doing was affirming this sense of timelessness, that when you enter poetry, you're, you're reading a work that's of its age. Scarlet Letter is 19th century. You cannot miss it. 
But once it's created as a work of art, it's not history, even though it has a historical context, it's not history, it enters this other order, and we're meant to read it in, in the context of that larger order, Moby Dick, the Iliad. Um, those of you who've done Moby Dick know that it's almost impossible to read them without being aware of the, the Odyssey, the Iliad, or all the other epics. So. Um, Eliot said that one of the greatest things James Joyce could have done, because Jace, Joyce, Joyce was one of the other, probably the other great, the, Eliot and Joyce were, were probably the two greatest literary figures of the 20th century. Joyce's great work is called Ulysses. It's a, it's a, it's a long epic, and it's, it's about a man in Dublin, Leopold Bloom, who's Jewish, who's the counterpart of Odysseus, who's Greek. And Bloom is living in Catholic Ireland, and almost nobody in Catholic Ireland has anything good to say about Bloom, largely because he's Jewish. So he takes Leopold Bloom um, as his hero, and we go through one 12-hour day. And if you read the book, you know that you can't read anything in it without taking, being taken back to Dublin exactly as it is because Joyce's descriptions of London are, are it, it's like London has, I mean Dublin has come off the page. He did things that no other artist has ever done. And I, I doubt that anybody ever, I, I'll give you ex just one example. I, I can't remember what episode there, I think there's 24 chapters. In one of them, I think it's the barmaid that lines up with one of the scenes in the Odyssey. The whole of that scene is presented like a fugue. You've got different voices, and if you know anything about fugue, you've got different themes coming together to, to form another theme. Joyce has to present it so that each theme, each theme runs separately, because you can't do it simultaneously. But we're to read it knowing that they exist simultaneously. So even though he, you know, he has to go by sequence, we have to put the two voices together. So he's asking us to read it like music. That's a technically, that's how difficult it gets. Uh, it's one of the reasons Eliot so admired him because he was saying that what Joyce did was give a key what, to what people were going to have to do. Because remember, this is modernity, and this is a point I want to underscore. The First World War has taken place. Darwin's already published Origin of the Species. Freud's work on dreams is about to be published. In fact, early on, it, it is by the time I'm talking about. So modernity is underway. A scientific view claiming that we are products of evolution, um, that, that there's, this there's this work of a natural species and the survival of the fittest and things developing out of this that have produced us as human beings. So human beings are no longer made in the image of God. We are products of an evolutionary system, some force we can't fully understand. Freud made a similar claim in the sense that he denied man's free will. He said that we're products of these libidinous instincts. That, that there's something inherently evil in us, this Oedipal complex and um, what he called polymorphous perverse. There's this perversity that's basic to our nature. Second World War was on you know, um, just around the corner. So Eliot's writing aware that our spiritual past is being lost. It makes him write um, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, one of his most early, one of his earliest poems, most important. And shortly after that, I think it was 1922, he published The Wasteland. And that was um, one, of the one of the poems that defines modernity, because in that poem, Eliot's showing that we are living in a spiritual 
wasteland. We are back with Jeremiah, dry bones, souls dead, um, sex is mechanical. It's a world in which God has, seems to have disappeared, in which people know nothing about love. Um, so it was important for Elliot and Joyce to find some way of helping a modern world that's lost any sense of meaning to what they're doing, to find that meaning. They did it through myths. So both of them early on in their work went back to myths, okay, and back to the past. Elliot did it in the wasteland, he goes back, by the way, um, so many of his references points in the, in the wasteland are Hindu. He goes back to Indian culture. In fact, he ends it with Shinta, Shinta, peace be with you. The, the gods are, are speaking to us. Do we hear them? It's one of the cries at the end of Wasteland. Um, in this work, um, there, there, I'll get to it when we, when we finally get to the work, there are these constant allusions to the past, to Aeschylus and the House of Atreus. Um, you guys have, I don't know if you've read that, but and we've not done it, but it, um, Aeschylus is the first great Greek tragedian, and he takes as this subject the violation of men of the gods. The men have violated the gods in, in being invited to a feast and serving their families butchered up to the gods. So it's interesting. I mean, well, I mean, stop thinking about it. Christ was butchered. I mean, he's a god. It's amazing to me to think they, they, and they saw something, even though they didn't get it right, that they could have had any intuition of this. That a body was cut up and served, and a, a curse put on a house. And the curse takes, it works itself out over three plays, the Agamemnon, um, the Libation Bears, and the Eumenides. That's Aeschylus' great trilogy. Agamemnon returns home because he had to sacrifice his daughter to get to Troy. When he comes home, his wife plots to kill him. This is the great king of the Iliad. She and her lover kill Agamemnon. In the second play, the, um, the libation bears, his son has to take vengeance on that death and kill his mother. And then, by the way, there are all, there are all sorts of hints of that in the Iliad. If you're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll get hints of that, um, those, those actions. And in the Eumenides, the dark forces that come after Orestes to take vengeance on him for an act of matricide, killing his mother, together with the help of Athena, they come together and exonerate him and found Athens. And it's at that point that Athens becomes known as the just city. That it's capable of taking these dark demonic forces at work, in, particularly in our families, and reconciling them. So Eliot's aware of all of these. Um, just keep that in your mind. We, we can't go back to it, we don't have time, but when you read the play, it seems to me you can't hear it without having a sense there's a curse on the house. It's seven years he tried to run away. The chorus doesn't want him back. Go back to France. Go back to France. There's, there's some impending danger. Something's about to happen. You can't read the play without feeling the heaviness. Something. There's an oracular spirit. The words are oracular. They're heavy. They're solemn. The characters are fearful. Something's going to happen. Eliot's doing, that is, he's not writing in colloquial verse. He's writing in verse because he wants to give off a sense of something solemn, oracular, something's about to happen. It's going to be a martyrdom. And lots of the people don't want it to happen. They want to live in their comfortable lives. Um, they want the archbishop back because they're lost without him, but they know they're facing a danger. Things are, things are going to change. 
and they'll never go back to the way they were. Um, the other thing, remember, I, I, I won't read it now, but those of you who did uh, Boethius, remember, go back to uh, Consolation. In our edition, it was page 105, because it was in that book that Boethius described the still point. Remember, he made this distinction between fate and providence, and said that providence was the center of that circle, that the farther away from the center of that circle you move towards the edge, the more you were caught up in a world lost, too much given to itself. The closer you got to that center, the closer you, the more you simplified your life, the closer you got to God, the more at peace, the more that you would perceive things in love. You're no longer on the surface hating, condemning, aspiring, greedy, envious, you know, everything, everything of Eliot's, I mean, everything that presents St. Thomas with temptations, I mean, you know, recover the world. And at that still point is God's, um, is God. So one of the great images of the play is the image of the circle, the wheel. Repeatedly, it says the wheel is turning, fortune is at work. The question is, is what, is what um, St. Tom, is what he will go on to do, will it bring him to that still point? Will he escape the stuff of the world or not? Um, so, the language of the poem is oracular, it's formal. There are two scenes. They're broken by, you know, the homily. It splits the two in half. The second scene is different from the first in the fact that it has two parts. The first part takes place in the Archbishop's Hall. The second part takes place in the Archbishop's Hall. But there's a break and we go from the Archbishop's Hall to the cathedral. That's where Thomas will be executed. And I want to suggest this now. I, I don't want to push it too hard. But in one ways we can say that the, the structure of the work closely, not literally and not exactly, but it closely resembles the Mass. There are indroits, prayers, and a homily. And following the homily, a sacrifice in, in the church. And one of the questions the, the play keeps putting, it says, this is the day, this is the day, this is the day. One of the questions the, the, the play is asking us, are we really living these days, participating with Christ in his sacrifice, or are we caught up in the world doing what the world does? That's an insistent theme of the book. All the tempters, all the priests, what they're pressing, in some sense, and the chorus particularly, they're showing us images of ourselves and raising this question, are we really giving our lives for Christ, or are we living on the margins? Everything that we're going to hear from the priests and the, and the tempters. Um, there's this wonderful quote of Aeschylus that reminds me of this. It's, it's a famous quote. John, John Kennedy um, used to quote it. By the way, that's not a reason for my quoting it. But This is from Aeschylus's trilogy, the, the Agamemnon. There's a line in there that runs this. Even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What he's saying is that wisdom only comes to us through suffering. It's one of the themes here. Thomas is going to have to, will he be willing to go through the suffering the right way 
to bring it grace because he makes it clear there's so many wrong ways to enter suffering. Um, it, it'll, we, we'll come to that when we look at the, at the, at the figures. Okay, let me, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to go through the, the readings of the priest and tempters just to get clear in them because in some ways they look like they're indistinguishable but they're not. Um, because the real drama it, it exists between everything that they um, bring to um, Beckett. Here, one last thing too. Um, Beckett was um, born in, I guess, I mean, it wasn't a wealthy family. Um, he was born into a low status in society, but he raised, he was elevated. And at some point, um, he, he worked in the archbishop's home, and the archbishop um, um, worked with him to train him, to educate him. Um, he was asked to be chancellor, I think around 1150. I think he was born in 1120, 1911-20. He was asked to be chancellor and became chancellor and was very efficient, very good at what he did. And he was praised by the king. The king was um, struggling with the king of France because of um, conflicting claims on um, the, line, the line of um, succession to the thrones. And um, Henry was doing everything he could to try to reduce the power of the church um, in England, and Becket cooperated with him for the longest time when he was when he was chancellor. He was serving the king. Um, one of the concerns that Henry had with the Pope was that um, clergy, um, he wanted the clergy to be tried by the king and punished by the king, and the Pope didn't. He wanted the clergy to be punished by the church. Um, Henry was trying to do everything he could to increase the power over the church. He had control over the bishops. The bishops were serving him. And as long as Thomas was chancellor, he thought Thomas was on his side, supporting him. When Henry offered him the position of archbishop, he did it in the hopes that, that Becket would bring the chancellorship and the archbishop office together. Because if he did that, it would increase his control. Okay? When Becket became archbishop, he resigned as the chancellor, and he began to oppose Henry. Um, Henry was going to persecute him. He called a, um, an assembly together to pass laws. Becket refused uh, to sign them. They were called the, um, the Clarendon um, legislation. And he fled to France and um, sought out the protection of the French king. Um, the, the Pope wanted the men to reconcile, so um, Becket returned, but he knew when he returned what, what was going to happen. So that's basically the, the sort of background conflict that's, that's going on here. One of the most important things to remember is, he, he, this is so, it so, rem so reminds me of Thomas More. You know, he, Thomas says at the end, I was, I was the king's faithful servant. That's the way Becket looked at himself. When he was chancellor, he served the king because he didn't have to compromise. If he did, he would have resisted Henry. But when he was made archbishop, then his first responsibility was for God, and he had to serve him, even when it meant going against the king. 
And what it did was affect the way people saw him, because some people saw that he thought of him as a traitor, that he turned against England, and some called him arrogant, and you know, I mean, because they were used to seeing him do one thing and then suddenly he seems to do another. If you don't make allowance for, for that change in his life, you're not going to, you're just not going to see him well. But that's an important background for the, for the story. Okay. Now let me, what I'd like to do is go through um, some of the, um, some of the characters. Um, turn to page 11. I'm just going to quickly go through some things. Turn to page 11. This is the chorus. Here let us stand close by the cathedral. Here let us wait. Are we drawn by danger? Is it knowledge of safety that draws our feet towards the cathedral? What danger can be for us, the poor, the poor women of Canterbury? What tribulation with which we are not already familiar? There is no danger for us and there's no safety in the cathedral. Some presage of an act. Um, going over to 18. I'm just going to pick out some passages um, and then ask some basic questions. Bottom 18. Evil the wind and bitter the sea and gray the sky, gray, gray, gray. O Thomas, return, Archbishop, return, return to France, return quickly, quietly. Leave us to perish in quiet. You come with applause, you come with rejoicing, but you come bringing death into Canterbury. A doom on the house, there's that house of Atreus. There's, it's, that word is used several times. It's not a church. I mean, it is, but the fact that Elliot is using house is not an accident. He, he's got on his mind the, the curse on the house of Atreus. A doom on the house, a doom on yourself, a doom on the world. We do not wish anything to happen. Seven years we have lived quietly. Succeed in avoiding notice. Living and partly living. Go down some lines. Living and partly living. Go on again. Go down. Yet we've gone on living, living and partly living, at the very bottom of the page, again, living and partly living. Turn to 87. <coughs> I'm not going to preempt the play here, I just want to pick out some passages. 86 at the bottom. Even with the hand of the broom, the back bent in laying the fire, the knee bent in cleaning the hearth, we the scrubbers and sweepers of Canterbury, the back bent under toil, the knee bent under sin, the hands to the face under fear, the head bent under grief. Even in us the voices of seasons, the snuffle of winter, the song of spring, the drone of summer, the voices of beasts and birds praise thee. We thank thee for thy mercies of blood, for thy redemption by blood, for the blood of thy martyrs and saints, shall enrich the earth, shall create the holy places. For wherever a saint has dwelt, wherever a martyr has given his blood for the blood of Christ, there is holy ground, and the sanctity shall not depart, depart from it. It, it goes on, I could choose others, but at the very bottom of the page. Forgive us, O Lord, we acknowledge ourselves as a type of the common man, of the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire, who fear the blessing of God, the loneliness of the night of God, the surrender required, the deprivation and justice who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. I'm going to turn that around. Who fear the justice of God um, more than, is that right? We fear the justice of men less than the... We fear the justice of God more than the injustice 
of men. Take a second here. Characterize the chorus. Wimpy at first. Huh? Wimpy at first. What do you mean wimpy? Wimpy. Oh, wimpy. Sorry. Wimpy. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, we're lost. We're yep. you know, poor us. And, right. You know, they're waiting for this one guy to come back to, to lead them. And, but they're not seeking God in, their, in themselves. Yeah. Themselves. And at some point wanting to go back. Yeah. Enough. Anybody else? Anybody done any work on Greek tragedy? Did anybody go back to Greek tragedy? Did you remember from high school? In Greek tragedy, the chorus was always an embodiment of the common man, mm -hmm. status quo. So, and typically in a in a Greek drama, you'd have um, a chorus divided into two. You'd have what was called the strophe or turn and the antistrophe, the turn back. So you'd have the chorus making motions, dealing with the tragic hero. And generally, they were reluctant to engage with him or support him because they knew that whatever was going to happen was not going to be good. The tragic hero had this burden. Nobody wanted a part of it. Um, so the chorus is an image of ordinary people who don't want to risk, who want to stay as they are, who want to be comfortable. Um, in our world, it would be having our jobs, having making money, you know, bringing it, just washing. I mean, all the images that you know, I, we don't have time to go through with it, but it's all those things that encourage in us a safety, a lack of or not wanting to risk to have our life the way we want. It. And the interesting thing here is, as much as they want that, there's no way they can escape it. Beckett's coming back. He's the shepherd of his people. He know he knows that so many people are lost without him the people of faith, for England to not have him, for the archbishop not to have him, is like an abandonment. It's like Christ saying he, he would give up his sheep when Christ would never give up his sheep. So coming back is, is something um, Beckett can't avoid. He has to come back to take care of his flock. This last part here struck me a little odd in that it's, they seem like they, they learned something by Beckett's martyrdom. And they, they're now seeing that you know, it's easy to read this part, but it said here that the sin of the world is upon our heads, that the blood of the martyrs and the agony of the saints is upon our heads. Yeah. Was that an awakening for them? Anybody want to comment that? It's a good question. Elliot, to me, is so subtle. Just, um, they didn't want anything to happen before. They wanted to be comfortable and safe, and the martyrdom's taken place now. It's done. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure that I. I mean, I'm not sure how to answer the question myself. Mm -hmm. Let me ask it or answer your question with another question. I, even though I don't like doing that, but are they changed, or are they back now because the martyrdom has taken place, affirming a blood, in verbally? Because it, is it going to ask something of this right now? I mean, we don't know because the you know the play is going to end. Mm -hmm. So are they back at a point affirming verbally their faith? When the cost is over, it's just a tough. I have a hard time with it myself. It just mm -hmm. makes me wonder about where they are, and I, and what makes it even tougher for me. I mean, we're getting ahead of myself here, but you know that at the end of the play, the the tempter or the knights come out and justify themselves, and they do it in a way that implicates the people. So are so are we back? The martyrdom's over. Will people return to their lives? 
or we'll or or let me put it differently. Here, you you know that I'm always suggesting that this that this approximate a mass. It, it doesn't lay over it, but the parallels are really real. At the end, because he keeps talking, the, the, the characters say the day, the day, the day, when a holy day is taking place. Are people actually living in that day, or are they so caught up in their world today that they're not going back to that day and time and carrying it forward? I did this with um, Journey of the Magi. Remember, I asked the question, are we really living that journey? Uh, because what we find in the beginning is all these people want to be comfortable. They're all Catholic. They believe in all of this. But the, but the chorus says, half living, half not living. You know, they're going through the motions. So at the end, when the knights defend themselves, present what happened and in a way that justifies themselves, they're not going to admit any wrong here. And they do it in a way that implicates us. It seems to me Eliot is really, it's like a good priest, he's challenging us. Where are we? You know, the, 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 the martyrdom is over. Has it changed our lives so that we're more willing to, to, to act self-sacrificially in our own lives? Or are we still going through the motions? That's sort of getting ahead of ourselves, but. I think what struck me about that, that last paragraph or whatever it is, um, is that they seem to be saying, okay, this is who we are. You know, we're the common man, we're afraid. And we're the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire. You know, don't, we don't want to go out. Um, but when they talk about what they fear, um, what they fear the most is, is goodness. God. Well, not just not just yeah. God as as an abstraction, but but they fear um, they fear the blessing of God, they fear the justice of God, they fear the love of God. Um, they're they're afraid of all of the goodness that God offers, presumably because there's a price to it. Um, but they fear that more than the hand of man in any Flesh way. Flesh that out, Doc, can you? Why? What does that say about them? I mean, to pick up Joe's question, if you can. I love that line. We fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. We fear the justice of God more than the injustice of men. They're far more frightened of what they're going to have to, I mean, your way of putting it, the, the love, the goodness of things, because of the cost of actually living it, because to do that means you have to give up the things of the world that keep you from it. Um, well, they saw that get murdered, right? I don't think so. The people? The people? Yeah. You mean the chorus? The cor well, let me ask you a question. I'm not familiar with poetry at this level, yeah. but is the chorus really like a group of people, or mm -hmm. is it yes. just uh, one or two people? No, no, it's a group. It's a group. I don't know what the number was, but it would have been a group. Um, I, I just saw an, a change in them in that last, that yeah. last uh, part that they woke up to. Let's God leave that. Can we, let's leave that because let's get. I I wanted to avoid the end, the second part, to next week. But yeah. let's let's see if we can't cover the first part and and see what it does to us when we get to the end and look at the end then.
Um, take, I want to look at the priests. Page 13. I want to do this very quickly, so just stay. I'm going to, I want to try to get through the priests, three of them, briefly. So I'm, I'm going to be just brushing over things quickly and then ask, what's the difference and what are they, what are they presenting to Beckett? So go to um, 13. 13. 13. So the chorus has said they want to be left to themselves. We are content if we're left alone, they say. Um, <coughs> destiny waits in the hand of God, shaping the still and shaping. I've seen things in a shop. Sunlight. They're nervous about all of this stuff. For us, the poor, there is no action but only to wait and to witness. First priest comes in and says, seven years and the summer is over. Seven years since the archbishop left us. Go again for um, 14, 15. The first priest says on 14, shall these things not end until the poor at the gate have forgotten their friend, their father and God have forgotten that they have a friend? Are all these, and what, what the third priest says, I wanted to wait on him, but he but it'll help explain what the first priest is responding to. Just above that, the, the third priest says, the strong man strongly and the weak man by caprice, they have but one law to seize the power and keep it. So at this point, the world is, in, is defined in terms of its power. It wants the power to have what it wants, to, to fulfill its desires. And the first priest says, shall all these things not end until the poor at the gate have forgotten their friend? That is, will things have to be so bad that they reach a point um, of, of realizing or feeling that they there is no God, that God doesn't watch over them? First priest on 15, does he come in full assurance or only secure in the power of Rome, the spiritual rule, the assurance of right and the love of the people? So he's asking how he comes. Is it an assurance or not? Is it going to bring assurance or not? Um, page 17. Um, I fear for the archbishop. I fear for the church. I know that the people bred of sudden prosperity. Um, the pride bred of sudden prosperity was but confirmed by bitter adversity. I saw him as a chancellor flattered by the king, liked or feared by courtiers in their overbearing fashion, despised and despising, always isolated, never one among them, always insecure, his pride always feeding upon his own vanities, virtues. virtues. <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> Virtues, pride drawing sustenance from impartiality, pride drawing sustenance from generosity, loathing power given by temporal devolution, wishing subjection to God alone. Had the king <coughs> been greater or had he been weaker, things had perhaps been different for Thomas. Those are just a couple. Um, let me set those against the second priest just for a second. Go to 13 again. Um, they're all waiting for Beckett to come. The first priest says, it's been seven years. The second priest says, what does the archbishop do and our sovereign lord, the pope, with the stubborn king and the French king in ceaseless intrigue, combinations in conference, meetings accepted, meetings refused, meetings unended or endless at one palace or another in France. Um, Second, um, on page 15, again, the second priest. Tell us, are the old disputes at an end? Is the wall of pride cast down that divided them? Is it peace or war? Um, 
and the second priest again on 17. Yet our Lord has returned. Our Lord has come back to his own again. We have had enough of waiting from December to dismal December. The Archbishop shall be at our head, dispelling dismay and doubt. He will tell us what we're to do. He will give us our orders, instruct us. Our Lord is, is at one with the Pope and also the King of France. We can lean on a rock. We can feel a firm foothold against the perpetual wash of tides, of balance, of forces, of barons and landowners. Now remember, part, part of what's going on here, um, the, the barons take advantage of the people. The people are not happy with the barons. The king wants to get the barons under control, and he was helping, hoping that Thomas would help him with the support of the pope. So wherever, we fought, wherever you look in this temporal order, there are nothing but conflicts. The king against the barons, the barons against the people. When Thomas came in as chancellor, he helped. Um, when he comes in as, arch, or as archbishop, he's going to come in with a different authority and a different purpose in what he does with the people. But temporally, politically, this is the situation. The rock of God is beneath our feet. Let us meet the archbishop with cordial thanksgiving. Our Lord, our archbishop returns, and when the archbishop returns, our doubts are dispelled. Let us therefore rejoice. I say rejoice and show a glad face for his welcome. Um, the third priest will talk about the wheel, but I want to stop here. Can you give, I know that's not very much to go on, any sense of the difference between the first two priests? Oh, yeah. What's the... I, I found the first priest very uh, apprehensive, very wary. The second priest more supportive, I thought. He was wanting Thomas to come back. I, I kind of got the sense for the right reason. Yeah. And... Uh, Stop there. Anybody else? Well, the first priest was pointing out all his faults. Yeah. And then the second priest said was more concentrating on right. his representation. Yeah. Yep. The first priest is more pessimistic, a little bit darker, and he wants assurances. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know. So there's a lack of something positive in him. The, the, the second priest. He's full of assurances. He's very positive. He wants him back. Mm -hmm. um, he knows that the people need his help. So it's, it's interesting to watch the two men read the situation very differently. Even they're both priests. And, and the, the first one is um, far more critical. Yeah. Any, anybody else? When we do the third one, I want to stop and say, so what's he doing with the priesthood here? Um, but here, let's look at the third for the third priest. Go to 14. Third priest. I see nothing quite conclusive in the art of temporal government but violence, duplicity, and frequent <coughs> malversation. King rules or barons rule. The strong man strongly and the weak man by caprice. They have but one law to seize the power and keep it. And the steadfast can manipulate the greed and lust of others. The feeble is devoured by his own. Um, look at 17. For, sorry, I'm sorry, 15, sorry. Um, third priest at the top. What peace can be found to grow between the hammer and the anvil? And um, 18. Look at 18. This is one of the early mentions of the wheel. 
Remember, that's an image of fortune. That's from, we're straight out of Boethius. So all of you guys who have done Boethius, you should be at home here. The, 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 the wheel is an image of fate um, in a moving world that's out of control. Providence is, is depicted in what's closer to that center where God immediately rules. And we have to ask, where is Beckett on that circle? Is he towards the margin, periphery, towards the seal point? Where do we locate him you know, in this conflict here? The third priest says, um, <clears throat> the, the, the second priest has just said, um, when the archbishop returns, our doubts are dispelled. Let us therefore rejoice. I say rejoice and show a glad face for his welcome. I am the archbishop's man. Let us give the archbishop welcome. Third priest, for good or ill, let the wheel turn. The wheel has been still these seven years, and no good or ill or good, let the wheel turn. For who knows the end of good or evil, until the grinders cease and the door shall be shut in the street, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Um, the chorus comes in and gives, this is that long line where they keep saying living and partly living. Mm -hmm. It's like they're partly in the church and partly not. They want holiness, but they don't want to risk it's like half-dead souls, and in, in the modern world, it would be the living dead. Um, Brother Kate Devano was lukewarm. Yeah. Because he was lukewarm. <laughs> yeah. I like dead souls myself. Dead souls. If, you read the, if you read the Russian novel, Dead Souls, I mean, it's, you really get an image that, of people. And you're, I mean, I don't watch this up. You're all familiar with this TV series, The Walking Dead, I think it's called. I mean, what is it? How many years has it gone on? I've seen every one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's got. It's. It's speaking to something in our culture, or it wouldn't yes, be as popular as it is. It's, it's showing that people are going through life, dead, making compromises, political. Compromise. I mean, you know, you go on and on, but um, the betrayals, the fragmenting, the, yep. all that goes on in that series. Um, Marcy's, Marcy's going to give a class on it next year. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> um, sorry, where am I? Yeah, 18. Sorry. I thought 18. Oh, I just, I just read, read it. it. I just read it, yeah. So, the di I mean, I know this is very oh, The difference between the third this. priest and the other two. Just read that, yeah. Third priest is whatever will be, will be, basically. He, he's, I, I wrote K Sarah Sarah, but he just whatever will be, will be. Yeah. For who knows the end of good or evil? It's like, where we get between a rock and a hard place? Hammer and an anvil. Karen, describe him. Your words. The third priest? Yeah. He says, hey, I'm kind of with Joe, he's like, what's going to be is going to be, so let's just get on with it. Yeah. Julie, you had something. Oh, I said, let's get on with it. Yeah, same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gita, did you? Is he like a philosopher? Not good. Not, mm. Why do you say that? Just because he's, um, what he says, the way he says, says it. To me, that I, I'm... I mean, I find it interesting that you use that because there was something that I was searching for along those lines. For good or ill, let the wheel turn. The wheel has been still these seven years. For good or ill, the wheel, for who knows the end of good or ill. Because good, remember, good and evil in the temporal order is never settled. 
um, the, until the grinder ceases. So there's something in him that looks towards final ends. But he's some, he, there's, a, there's a note of realism in this guy insofar as he's looking at the temple order. You know, what's going to be the outcome? So when a, when a martyr dies, in, tr in the temporal order, what good will come of that? If you're a person of faith, you won't have a question, but if you're in the temporal order judging everything by temporal appearances, what will the end be? And what will the end of evil? If, will, will the end of evil always be other evil, or will good come out to answer it? I mean, there's a note of realism in this guy that's, you know, it's going to be, but the language, the, uh, the images that he uses are, um, are really different. But if we think about the martyrs in the, in, in the church, they are remembered. They're, they're uh, adored. They're, they're, they're given a place of honor. In the temple world, okay, you were good at one point, but let's move on now to the next person. See, the trouble I'm having with that, Joe, is, is and it seems to me it's, a, it's an irony in the story that um, all these people are Catholic, the chorus is Catholic, they're all believing, but what we're realizing is that people can live at a level of verbal reality, you know, they can speak and, but the question, um, in fact, because I'm, I'm, I'd forgotten to say, one of the, I'm so drawn to this right now, to me it's one of the most difficult books I can remember trying to teach, because I can't recall a book that goes so close to holiness. Mm -hmm. You know, the Dante's Paradiso is good, the Winter's Tale, Shakespeare. This is dealing directly with martyrdom, and what it's doing is setting priests, the ordinary people, who, all of whom are Catholic, and they're presenting these various positions, but Eliot, Eliot's doing it in a way that doesn't detract from them <coughs> completely. I mean, we're aware that, you're, you, I can't remember your word about the course. Wimpy, 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 at first. Yeah, yeah, that they're... They all have foibles, they all have weaknesses, they're ordinary people, but there's something good in them. You know? But here in a Catholic world, it, I don't think we can make a clear division between the temporal and the... because lots of Catholics are going to venerate the saints and not, not go through it. Thomas, or you know, to risk that degree of self-giving, because everything that's presented here is set off against Beckett, Every one of the priests has a slightly different interest. Each one of the tempters is going to present him with a different possession of the world, something that presumably, in their mind, will help get him away from this and come back under the king. So the whole, the whole book is making us aware of the kind of daily compromises yeah. Christians, Catholics, make. It's, to me, it's a difficult, difficult book because it takes us so immediately into the temptations and... The attitudes, the, the you know, lead, the, the course, leave me alone. Each of the three priests taking a slightly different stand. Let's look at the, oh, the before we leave, take a look at the messenger because I want to make sure that, page 16. <coughs> the messenger is just, um, um, bringing news that Thomas is coming, but he, he, he reports an exchange between, or on the part of, the, of um, Thomas. He says, it's common knowledge that when the archbishop parted from the king, he said to the king, my lord, he said, I leave you as a man whom in this life I shall not see again. What is that, how did you guys read that? 
because he left for France and now he's back. I thought it meant that he knew that he would never see the king again, that the king would mm. kill him yeah. if he came back. Maybe he was telling us about his leaving the temporal world to go to the yeah. spiritual world to become a true bishop. You mean in the next life? I'm well, sorry. No, no. When he, that he's, he's leaving as the man. Because oh. it, it sounds like Thomas was doing some bad things as chancellor, working with the king and subservient to him. And when he became archbishop, that he started, he saw the presence of God in his life. Anybody else? Hmm. I think it's that he knows he's he's signing his death warrant here. That mm -hmm. um, but it's just curious to me. My Lord, he said, "I leave you as a man whom in this life I shall not see again." Um, I don't know. I, I, I may be making to, that. Given the circumstances, Henry will never be the man Thomas once knew him to be. Mm -hmm. um, they were friends, you know, when they were younger. They knew each other as friends. They don't know each other as friends now and haven't for some time. So, But I think it's probably more along what Julie's saying that you know, he, he has some premonition. That, but I just throw that other one out because it's, you know, Elliot, Elliot's always working with multiple ironies in what he's doing. Let's look at the tempters. This is where it gets more and more serious. So the, the, the four tempters are going to take us to the sermon. When we pick up next week, I'd like to start with a sermon and look at the sermon and the second half of the play, okay? Turn to page 23. Um... So the tempters arrive, um, and let me just offer this thought before we look at the, I think the tempters are, are meant to be taken as actual characters. Um, the knights are actually the real people because they have the names of the people who historians know executed Thomas. The tempters aren't named, but we're, we're to take them as real characters, but I also think their function is to help take us into Thomas's interior in a way that isn't true of the priest, because then we know what he's tempted with as a person. What's in, that is, what's, under, what's underneath the appearance, however people perceive him, his critics, his friends, through the tempters, we're given an inside glimpse at exactly what they think will tempt him. So it's, it's not only presenting a character, we're getting a picture of what goes, that's invisible of what's inside him. Okay, so, <clears throat> sorry, I have to, page 23, first tempter, you see, my Lord, I do not wait upon ceremony, here I come forgetting all acrimony, hoping that your present gravity will find excuse for my humble levity. Um, um, I want to stop and ask you about the rhyme, but I'm going to wait until next week, but while you're reading it, remember, keep... If you can, read it orally, out loud, because you'll hear rhyming. And I've asked this question before. Why does he slip in and out of rhyme? But mm -hmm. Carl's got something in his mind. I'm going to wait. Good. But, um, um, 
You won't despise an old friend, he says, old Tom Gay, Tom, Gay Tom Beckett of London. Your lordship won't forget that evening on the river when the king and you and I were all friends together. Friendship should be more than biding time can sever. What, my lord, now that you recover favor of the king, shall we say that summer is over, or that good time cannot last? Um, go on, um, down at the bottom. Um, and of the new season, spring has come in winter, snow in the branches shall float as sweet as blossom, ice along the ditches mirror the sunlight, love in the orchard, send up, send the sap shooting. Um, next page. Men learn little from others' experience, but in the life of one man, never the same time returns. Sever the cord, shed the scale. Only the fool fixed in his folly may think he can turn the wheel on which he turns. Um, go down. Um, your lordship is too proud. The safest beast is not the one that roars most loud. This was not the way of the king or master. You're not used to be so hard upon sinners when they were your friends. Here's this question. Has he changed? And he may have. But how much of this is the way people perceive him because of what he had to do as chancellor and what he has to do now as archbishop? Be easy, man. The easy man lives to eat the best dinners. Take a friend's advice. Leave well alone. Tempter, go down. Then I leave him. Thomas says, too late. Um, and dismisses him, and the tempter says, if you will remember me, my lord, at your prayers, I'll remember you at kissing below the stairs. Describe the first tempter. What's the, um, what's the first? Carl, Julie, just. Well, he's reminding them of their, the good, good old times they had together as friends, <coughs> and kind of the, um, the physical pleasures that, yeah, even though he can't, I mean, he says you can't turn the wheel, but cut the cord from anything, you know, that's going to take you from that, and you can still have that stuff. Line that up with Boethius, Jeannie, can you? What were the great goods? that Boethius identified that are goods in themselves that become problems when men give them too much importance. Fame, power. Fame, power. Say? Well, pleasure. That's good. Got three. Fame, pleasure, power. What all Americans want? Money. Wealth. So the first tempter is really making Boethius' argument. Here are the things you want. You don't want to lose. Go back when. So what he's doing is speaking of a time of innocence when they were young. They shared that together. They knew these brothers. Both of them grew up. They took on different responsibilities. They've got different burdens. He's calling them back to that, that kind of innocence and those earth, those worldly goods, wealth, power fame or reputation and pleasure. The second tempter, 27. Bottom 26. Your lordship has forgotten me, perhaps. I will remind you, we met at Clarendon at Northampton. At last at Mont Montmirail in Maine, now that I have recalled them, 
Let us but set those not too pleasant memories in balance against another or a other earlier and way weightier ones. Those of the chancellorship. See how the late ones rise. You master of policy whom all acknowledge. Remember, part, as a chancellor, he, he looked out for the people and tried to govern in a way that would protect Henry's policies for justice, caring for the poor. Um, so, and he was known for how good he was at what he did. <clears throat> you, master of policy, whom all acknowledge, should guide the state again, your meaning. The chancellorship that you resigned when you were made archbishop, that was a mistake on your part, still may be regained. Thank you, my lord. Power obtained grows to glory, life lasting a permanent possession. A temple tomb, monument, a marble, rule over men, recognize, that is, look at the fame and glory that um, sadness only um, to those giving love to God alone. Shall he who held the solid substance wander walking with deceitful shadows? Power is present, holiness hereafter. Our concern here should be power, holiness not until the next life. Who then? The chancellor, king and chancellor, king commands. Chancellor richly rules. This is a sentence not taught in the schools. To set down the great, protect the poor, beneath the throne of God, can man do more? Disarm the ruffians, strengthen the laws, rule for good of the better cause, dispensing justice, make all even, is thrive on earth and perhaps in heaven. So he's called to temporal justice. That's what his end was when he was chancellor. What mean? Real power is purchased at price of a certain submission. Your spiritual power is earthly perdition. I hope that's clear, right? That is, you'll suffer here in whatever way you're motivated by final ends. You're going to be at odds with the world. Mm -hmm. But notice the, the, the irony of the words is earthly perdition. Because perdition really is the final states. What comes afterwards because we've made this world too important. Power is present for him who will wield. Who shall have it? He will come. What shall be the month? The last from the first. What shall we give for it? They go on. Um, tempter, 29. Men must maneuver, monarchs also waging war abroad. Need fast friends at home, private policy is public profit. Dignity shall be dressed with decorum. You forget the bishops whom I've laid under excommunication. Because the bishops went after him in support of Thomas when he was in France, he excommunicated them. So the wait, bishop. Wait, you said the bishops went after him. Thomas. Thomas. In support of the king. When they did that, supporting the king instead of him, he excommunicated them. So he fell out of favor with the bishops. By the way, this so this is the cat. I mean, this is watching the Thomas More movie again. He's the bishops are caving, they're giving into Thomas's or Henry's power. You forgot the barons, who will not forget constant curbing of petty privilege, because he curbed the barons as well. Against the barons is king's cause, churl's cause, chancellor's cause. No, shall I who keep the keys, the keys of heaven and hell supreme alone in England, who bind and loose with power from the pope, descend to desire a punier power, delegate to deal the doom of damnation, to condemn kings, not to serve, not serve among their servants? Is my, is my open office? No, go. Um, so 
he's saying as archbishop he holds the kings or the keys the gold and the silver to bind to loose that gave him a power above temporal concerns he cannot he cannot be dictated by political ends and means the way he did when he was chancellor the third tempter 3134 um, he says I'm no courtier I know a horse a dog <clears throat> a country keeping lord who minds his own business um, he says we're the people um, the, who are the real Englishmen we care for the country we are the backbone of the nation we not the plotting parasites about the king Excuse my bluntness. I'm a rough, straightforward Englishman. So he has he has no apparently no good feelings for the barons or the king. Um, going over 33, we are for England. We are in England. You and I, my lord, are Normans. You know that Normandy is the northern part of France, and the Normans had claims on the throne after William the Conqueror um, came over and conquered England. It, it combined the two thrones, so there are constant claims back and forth between England and France. This man's an, identifying himself with Norman and says, um, um, Becca does too. Just east of them, if I remember, is Anne, Anjou, um, another, um, you call it, it's a region. Mm -hmm. And the, the Normans and Angevin people were at war with each other. And he's saying, England is the land for Norman sovereignty. Let the Angevin destroy himself fighting in Anjou. He does not understand us, the English barons. We are the people. Go down. For a powerful party which has turned its eyes in your direction to gain from you, your lordship asks. For us, church favor would be an advantage. Blessing of the Pope, power for protection, is the fight for liberty. You, my lord, in being with us, would fight a good stroke at once for England and for Rome ending the tyrannous jurisdiction of the king's court over the bishop's court, we cut into that power, of king's court over the baron's court. Thomas, which I have to found. So this tempter is appealing once again to the control he had and expecting Becca to use papal power for political ends. Because if he can do that, it'll, it'll give this man what he wishes and the power he wants to have with the barons and the king. Um, 34, shall I who rule like an eagle over doves now take the shape of a wolf among wolves because he sees all the people tearing at the king? I hope everybody's getting, this is so complex. He did everything he could to serve the king. He's still trying to do it even though he's, knowing he's going to his death. He will not betray the king and he knows all the barons and bishops are fighting among each other for power. And this guy wants him to get support for Rome to quiet that, to increase his power. So no matter where he goes, he's going to meet enemies. Because he's not, he's not going to be giving any of these peoples the power they want. It would undermine the king, or it would undermine the pope. So he's got friends nowhere. He's surrounded by enemies. Now take the shape of a wolf among wolves. Pursue your treacheries as you have done before. No one shall say that I betrayed a king. Okay. Now the fourth tempter comes in, and the, wait, any questions about the first three? First one is worldly principles, right? Mm -hmm. The second is chancellorship, and this one goes to something a little bit 
uh, more autonomous, that he, he wants all these other bodies to be curbed so his can increase. So we've got a, um, a whole variety of interests at the political level um, that people are, are using to try to keep um, Beckett from going through with what he's going to have to do here. The fourth tempter comes in and he says, do not be surprised to receive one more. Had I been expected, I had been here before. I always precede expectation. As you do not know me, I do not need a name. And as you know me, that's why I come. You know me, but have never seen my face. To meet me before was never time or place. That's a riddle. It's really presented like a riddle. Um, going over, he says on page 36 in the middle, you would wait for trap to snap, having served your turn, broken and crushed. As for barons, envy of lesser men is still more stubborn than a king's anger. Kings have public policy, barons private profit, <coughs> jealousy raging, possession of the fiend. Barons are employable against each other. Greater enemies must kings destroy. That is, he's saying, kings are going to come, kings are going to go. Barons are going to come, barons are going to go. You've been facing all these temptations. What's this guy doing? Thomas says, what's your counsel? Fair forward to the end, all other ways are closed to you except the way already chosen. But what is pleasure, kingly rule, or rule of men beneath a king, with craft in corners, stealthy stratagem, to general grasp of spiritual power? Man oppressed by sin, since Adam fell, you hold the keys of heaven and hell. Power to bind and loose. Bind, Thomas, bind. King and bishop under your heel. King, emperor, bishop, baron. That is all the, we, all the sources of power mm -hmm. that have made an appeal to him now. He's saying, um, bind them all. King, bishop under your heel. King, emperor, bishop, baron, king. Uncertain mastery of melting armies. War, plague, revolution. New conspiracies broken. That is, that's the way of the world. Have done with it. To master or servant within an hour, this is the course of temporal power. The old king shall know it when at last breath, no sons, no empire. He bites broken. The king's going to die. So what to do? Um, what is this guy saying? Going over. 38 at the top. When king is dead, there's another king. King is forgotten when another shall come. Saint and martyr ruled from the tomb. Think, Thomas, think of enemies dismayed dies, his influence will go on. Go down towards the bottom. Nothing lasts but the wheel turns. The nest is rifled and the bird mourns. So remember this Boethius' wheel. None of us will ever escape these things. They're part of nature. They fill our lives. Pondering the qualities that you lack will only try to find the historical fact. All people will justify what they're doing. When men shall declare that there was no mystery about this man who played a certain part in history. That is because once his biographers take this up, they're going to do what all biographers do. This is why he did it. These are his motives. But what is there to do? What is there to be done? Is there no enduring crown to be won? The tempter in the middle of the page, seek the way of martyrdom. Make yourself the lowest on earth to be high heaven. Thomas, no. Who are you tempting with my own desires? Others have come. What do you ask? So it's as if for the first time in facing the tempters, this is the first time he's had to face himself. Okay. Um, 
Um, others reveal real goods, worthless but real. You only offer dreams to damnation. Tempter, you have often dreamt them then. Thomas, is there no way in my soul's sickness does not lead to damnation in pride? I well know that these temptations mean present vanity and future torment. Can sinful pride be driven out only by more sinful? Can I neither act nor suffer without perdition? Here, I want to end with this and then ask who this guy is. And the last lines here, before the four tempters speak together, before we get to the break, he says, You know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. You know and do not know that action is suffering, and suffering action. Neither does the agent suffer, nor the patient act. I hope that's clear. An agent um, is instrumental to something. A patient, why it's called Christ's passion, because passion means um, patience, suffering. Mm -hmm. um, Christ's passion, the, we, the, the meaning of that is he was at the mercy of the world. He had to take it on. To have a passion for something means you're under its influence. If you see a piece of cake and you've got a passion for it, it means you're being passive. That cake is acting on you. Is that clear? If you're looking at a steak and you're, you're putting on weight and you're saying, I shouldn't eat it, and you have a passion for it, you're letting that thing have a power over you. That's what a passion means. Yeah. See? So Christ's passion was letting the world have its way so that he could suffer for us to... Mm -hmm. Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act. Because remember, the patient is being passive. What, when you're a patient in a hospital, what does it mean? You're letting the doctor work on you. Okay? If you're letting... A drink get influence on you. You're letting that thing have a power over you. You're ceasing to act. You're letting something act on you. But both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it. That the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may, may turn and, be, and still be forever still. Now, in one sense, that, that's the climax to the whole thing. Thomas is going to say he's got to submit his will to this. Um, um, and then at the very end, he says um, on page 45, um, Servant of God has chance of greater sin and sorrow than a man who serves a king. I, I, that's self-evident, yeah? If you're serving God, there's more at risk. If you fail Him, the sin's going to be greater. Those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them still doing right. Is that clear? Mm. We, can, we can serve... Here we, on the end, take a look at 44. Now is my way clear, now is the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. The last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Servant of God has chance of greater sin and sorrow than the man who serves a king. For those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them, still doing right. And striving with political men may make the cause political. What's he saying? Can anybody paraphrase those? Because this brings us to the climax and the end of the first section. What's he saying? I think he's saying that if he, if he does the right thing and continues to oppose the king and stand up for 
through right and he's martyred, if he does that in order to get power and honor for himself, yeah. he's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Right. Yeah, I think you're right on, Jeannie. It's, if, if he does it for his pride, so he can say, look at my accomplishments, look what I've done. That is, what's at issue here in this last temptation is his own ego. Whether he's really getting past his own ego. That's why the guy said, I was expected and I was here before you even knew it. Because the lifelong struggle for, and, and it's clear that at some point, um, Beckett um, meditated on this. I, I can't imagine a priest living and not meditating on it. Why are you doing this? Is it for your own ego, your own vanity? show how great, look at my accomplishments, look how good I am. So the graver danger right now, and he sees that, it, um, that its outcome could be damnation, that if he does this, I mean that line that I, you know, if you, sorry, um, if you, the sorrow and the sorrow, then the man who serves the king, for those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them, still doing right. Even if they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it for their own pride, they're poisoning it and themselves. Um, so characterize the last tempter. Anybody else want to say anything about him? Say it again. I didn't think it was a real person. Yeah. I thought it was killed. Yeah. That's why I said earlier, I mean, I think we're supposed to see them as real people, but there's a way in which each one of them presents an aspect of his interior reflecting on himself. Um, but that's how Satan works on us. He, he knows us, and he takes our faults and can turn them against us. What do you guys make of this line? We're, we're going to go, sorry, but one last, because it's, it's crucial to this whole action taking place here. And he says, God bless. What page were you on? 45. Where he's talking about the wheel turning mm -hmm. and um, where, the, where the tempter says, yeah, on page 40 at the bottom. I'd like just a last quick thought for, on, on the part of anybody. But both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. Somebody paraphrase that. Is that predestination? Are, are we back at Boethius saying, you know, with, along with the Calvinists, that all things are predetermined? What's he saying? I took it as the world continues. The world will move on. I didn't get predestination out of that. But but but, but yeah, no, I, but you know that we may will it because it's already what page is that? God, thank you. I'm not still not used to using these glasses. Yeah. An eternal an eternal action. There's a he said that the pattern may subsist. That means there's a pattern there that's fixed. It's eternal. In an eternal action, an eternal patience to which all must consent, that it may be willed, right. and which all men must suffer, that they may will it. 
Is this predetermined or not? Somebody explain how Elliot's using this eternal pattern that it must subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. He's playing with paradoxes everywhere here, so I'd just like to take, what's he saying? Can we put it into, go ahead, Bob. No, I was no, just, just thinking the future goes on. I mean, that's after whatever it happens. I mean, well, even though it's predetermined and it, and it ends, there's something that goes on in the future, but perhaps I have a new, another predetermination. According, according to our faith, what's fixed in heaven? Wait, let me, what's fixed? What's the one thing that's going to happen to all of us here on earth? We're going to die. We're going to die. Gonna die. <laughs> that's fixed, right? We're that's all going to die. That's fixed. That's fixed. Right. And according, and we know, at least this is our belief, that there's a fixed pattern in heaven, that a redemption has been done, final. Right. It's been done. Christ went to the cross. So there's an eternal pattern of birth and death and rebirth. Right. A regeneration is possible through Christ. Okay, those are fixed. Does that mean every one of our lives is fixed? No, because we have free will. Can you say that? Well, you don't have free will to change your change your 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 faith. I mean, you're, you're dead. You gotta, you're die. dead. You're, so the real, I mean, the interesting thing, the way he, you know, the, the way he plays with will to will that in order for it to be willed. It, I think I don't think it's to, some people could read this as a denial of free will. It's it's with Calvin. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is we, we're not going to escape death. Right. And the eternal pattern has been established by Christ. That's eternal. It won't change. The question is, will we give our will to what already has been willed, whatever the particular circumstances of our lives? So I would say it's not a denial of free will, but it's a recognition of the limits within, we, within which we use our free will. Mm-hmm. But don't we have to consider who's saying this? It's the tempter. I, I, I took it as Satan. This is the devil talking in, in my ear. But remember, there's a truth to what he's saying. This tempter is getting to deeper things than the other guys are yeah. going to. He's I think this is Eliot speaking through a tempter, dealing with what Thomas as a priest is going to face. That the grave danger for him, what he's called to do is to give his will to Christ. I, I hope that's clear. What's at issue right now at this moment is he can give his will seeming to do the right thing and not be doing it. Because in, inwardly He's doing it for himself. I hope everybody understands. The, the question is, it, it's like this is a precondition of the martyrdom. He's got to die to himself in order to do this. And, and to do it means he shares in Christ's freedom, his own action. So in one sense, the whole play has been, up to this point, has been aiming towards this point. All the priests, all the tempters are showing us the various things that a Christian is called to deal with in order to be with Christ. It's the freedom you have at the end. Okay. We pick up with the homily and birth and death and holiness. I mean, that's what's stunning about this. It's I'll have time to study this for next time.
Happy birthday. Yeah, Bob, happy birthday. Yes, thank you all of you. And if you ever need a cane, I've got one I'll lend you. <laughs> but, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to come at a high price, because my, my, my rental fees are really high. You better have some scratches on it and some games next time.